Good morning, it really is great to be with you. What a day to be in Nottingham, even Forest stayed up, goodness me. It's time, it's time to believe for miracles. There's a year in which Forest stay up and County get promoted. Wow, goodness me, Wimbledon could still do something. Anyway, we'll see. I don't know about you, but I find it crass, annoying, and somewhat unintelligent for someone to use their sermon to advertise their ministry. So I thought instead of doing that, I'd just talk about EA for two minutes, then we'll move on if that's okay. The Evangelical Alliance was started in 1846 with two aims that remain our two aims today. Unite the church in its mission to reach the lost in every part of the United Kingdom and give the church a clear and effective voice into every layer of society. Now, let's just deal with one thing. That evangelical word, it's not redundant, but it does need redeeming a little bit. All it really means are four things. One, we believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. Stop changing scripture to baptize culture and start changing culture with the truth from the pages of the word of God. Secondly, we believe that the death and resurrection of Jesus is the single most important thing in human history. Thirdly, we believe in the need for conversion. You don't come to faith by osmosis. You get on your knees and you meet your saviour. And finally, we believe in the need to be active in the world, making the world more like the kingdom. That's why evangelicals were involved in the abolition of the slave trade, the provision of education before anyone else. In recent years, Christians Against Poverty, food banks, street pastors. And the other thing about being an evangelical, for me at least, is it means that we accept that more than one stream of the church needs to work together to change the UK. There's over 80 denominations, networks and streams part of the Evangelical Alliance saying, let's do this together. Now, we're a membership organization. We're made up of 3,000 churches like this one, 500 organizations, and currently 20,000 individual members. We're doing what we can to speak up on the difficult issues. We're in the corridors of power on some of the things no one else wants to talk about, let's be honest. We're also in there to talk about some of the things that are more positive, how the church is blessing its community at this time. But I'll tell you something, it really feels like we're Marmite in this moment. Lots of people don't like what the church is standing for in our culture, but those of us that stand for the truth of God need to stand together. And the, the membership makes a massive difference. This next week, we're at, I think we're at the Equality and Human Rights Commission this week. Last week, we were with um, one of the two major Westminster parties. The week, next week, we're, the week after next, we're with the other one. We're in these spaces speaking up and out on the issues that matter for the church. People often say, well, what difference does it make? I tell you, they listen to us when we speak. On many issues we're doing at the moment, I wouldn't talk about them right now, but my favourite one in my eight years at EA was when the government said they wanted to offstead all youth work and Sunday schools. Do you remember that? Public regulation of private religion. When have I moved to North Korea? It's absolutely bonkers. The idea that a faith illiterate culture would come in and offstead how you do your discipleship of your young people, that's an absolute infringement on religious liberty. It's an outrageous suggestion. And we went into the corridors of power and just said, on behalf of all our membership, you can't do this. And for now, it's kicked into the long grass. Why? Because we stand together and stand firmly in one place and say we speak as one voice. And we will continue to speak up and out on behalf of the church. We'll continue to do that. But the thing that's key for this next season is the individual membership. The church membership's great, but the individual membership is fundamental going forwards because we're constantly asked, how many actual people stand with you? When I got this role a few years ago, we had 16,000 individual members and I set the target that in the next decade we need to get to 50,000. That's why we're up to 20, we're on a road. Why does 50,000 matter? That puts us at the same membership of, as a political party other than the big two. 
Why does that matter? It means a new prime minister rings me, not the other way around. If we stand together, for every person who signs up, that's taken as 20 people who are believing and standing in that place. We need to stand together. We need to move forward. The Evangelical Alliance will speak up on the hard issues of our day. We'll fight for religious liberty. We'll say what the church is doing. But would you stand with us by being one of the voices? So if you do sign up, you just take this form at the end. It's £3 a month. It's a cup of coffee a month to be a member of the EA. As an individual or as a couple, if you're married, don't even check with your spouse. Just sign up as a couple. It counts as two that way. Would you consider standing with us? And if you do, I'm going to give you a present. Why? I like you. Why else? Let me be honest. I'm giving at least the next decade of my life to trying to unite evangelicals in reaching this nation for Jesus and to speak up on the difficult issues. Frankly, I'll give you whatever it takes to join us. If you need a kidney, let me know. So in this box... What you'll get as a little thank you is mine and my wife Anne's latest book, Unleashed. What does it mean to live like the Acts Church today? You'll get one of our resources in here. Speak up. This is a reminder of your gospel freedoms. We did it at the Lawyers Christian Fellowship. You've got more freedom to share the gospel in the UK than just about any country on earth. Use those freedoms or your children and your children's children will lose them. Here's the thing though, friends. We don't not share our faith because we're not allowed to. Perhaps because we're chickens. And finally... If this doesn't swing the deal, I'm genuinely out of ideas. It's an EA keyring, bear with me. This bit on the top's got a logo on it. It's a fake detachable quid. In our increasingly cashless society, when you need a supermarket trolley, you'll be so grateful you join the Evangelical Alliance. When you need a locker in the gym, happy days. All I ask is each time you use yours, would you pray the three things I pray each time I use mine? I pray that the church would be united in this nation. I pray that the voice of the church would be heard effectively in the corridors of power. And I pray that together we'd make Jesus known. You see, friends, in this season, we need to go deep locally in your postcode, but be connected nationally so that we can keep being the church in everywhere we need to be. Connect with us nationally, go deep locally, and let's go for it together. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, I pray you would forgive me for overselling in your house, but you know how pure the motive is, even if the method is a tad South London. Lord, as we turn to your word now, we ask you to speak to us. Whether it's through me or in spite of me, Lord, we want to hear from you today. Would you minister amongst us, we pray. Amen. Amen. I love coming to churches on a Sunday. It's a great joy. But because I live in London, I don't really have a car. We have one family car, but I don't have a car for a Sunday. So I always hire one. That's just a prefix to this story. Recently, I was driving to preach somewhere, and I went to get a coffee at the Warwick services. I get back to the car... And I turn the engine on, and as I turn the engine on, a white police van with blue flashing lights pulls up behind me to stop me reversing. The two policemen come and whack on the window and say, would you get out of the car where we can see your hands? I get out of the car, they say, where did you get this stolen car from? I said, Europe car. (laughs) Now, as you can see, on a Sunday, I dress like a geography teacher, so we managed to sort of diffuse it quite quickly. I showed them the paperwork. But it turns out that this was logged as a stolen car. Four ANPR cameras have gone off on my way up the M40. When I went into the Warwick services, a warning went out for any police within 10 minutes of the Warwick services to come and apprehend this car thief. Do you know the only real relief I have? Isn't it good I stopped? Can you imagine if I'd gone to the church? (laughs) I'd have got arrested in a church building on a Sunday morning. I don't imagine. But here's the thing, the police had the wrong information, so they misunderstood the situation. We mustn't go into our landscape with the wrong information. We want to understand the situation. 
In this psalm, you've basically got an Easter psalm ringing with hope. God will preserve the psalmist, verse 1. God is his goodness, verse 2. God is his inheritance, verses 5 to 6. God is always before him, verse 8. God gives hope, verse 9. God is not the God of death, verse 10, but the God of life, verse 11. What a psalm. Because Jesus took refuge in the Father, verse 1, for the sake of saving a holy people, verse 3, the Father saw his innocence, verse 4, and raised him from the dead, verse 10. He declared him to be the true Holy One and brought him back to heaven to reign at his right hand forever, verse 11. Basically, here we have the gospel, and isn't it fantastic? The resurrection of Christ, based on Psalm 16, means for us that what God promises, he delivers. We are held by this hope until we see Jesus face to face and rest before him. And I just think in our current moment, there are three keys in this psalm. The first is this, verse 1, he is our refuge. He is our refuge. Psalm 16 suggests so strongly that the greatest blessing for those who take refuge in God alone is their very relationship with him. The greatest benefit of trusting God is not what he gives us. It is having such a relationship of trust. Verse 2, apart from you, I have no good thing. And I think as the people of God, we need to return to the fact that actually we have him as a refuge and our very relationship with him is more than enough. When I, I've seen so many people come to Jesus over the years, and you know, it's so exciting. But the thing that really sticks with me is when life is really hard, you still have Jesus. When life is unbelievably difficult, you still have Jesus. These last few years, they've been difficult, haven't they? Fragility is relative, but I've never felt so fragile and yet I've never felt so hopeful because you stand on the rock of ages in the pain, in the difficulty, in the challenge, you still have Jesus. The greatest example of this, which I'll cling to for the rest of my days, was my late grandma. She died many years ago, but she had Alzheimer's disease. She had it as bad as you can have it. For the last seven years of her life, she sat in the corner of a nursing home dribbling on a teddy bear. She had one child, my dad, four grandchildren as one of those, she didn't recognize any of us. But she'd been a Christian for more than 60 years. Where is Jesus when you've got Alzheimer's disease? And my mum went in to see my grandma on my grandma's birthday. My mum did it for her benefit, not my grandma's, because my grandma didn't know who my mum was or what her birthday was or anything else. And my mum gives my grandma some presents and sits in the room with her. And she says to my grandma, can I pray with you? Now, my grandma couldn't talk, so being a good evangelical Christian my mum is, she took the silence as the yes she wanted to hear. My mum began to pray for this dear old lady. She might know peace in the midst of mental torture. And when my mum finished praying, she opened her eyes and my grandma's eyes were shut. My mum thought, isn't that wonderful, a bit of peace. But then something amazing happened. For the only time in her last years of life, my grandma spoke as she prayed. She said, I don't know who I am. And I don't know what I am. And I don't know where I am. But Lord Jesus, please love me. Friends, the refuge we have by having, being children of God is like nothing else. You can even lose your mind. You can lose your very faculties and yet you haven't lost Jesus. Only when we've made God our absolute master 
will we experience the real security of dwelling in him. This is not a season for half-hearted Christianity. It's a season to say, Lord, I'm all in. All my eggs in one basket. I hold nothing back. I want you to be my refuge. God himself is David's refuge everywhere, regardless of place. It's the mirror image of the faith of Psalm 11. And I don't know where your role takes you, but my job takes me to all kinds of incredible places and all kinds of scary places. And in those scary places where sometimes I feel like a social leper and I'm the only Christian in the room and everyone thinks that I'm awful and I've got to speak up on behalf of Jesus, I tell you what, the fact that the greatest promise in Scripture is that God is with me is such a comfort. Because even in those moments when you're in a room and there's 10 people and they might be really hostile to you, the overshadowing, the refuge of God, the refuge of Psalm 16 is the same refuge there. And friends, we can hold to that. And we can cling to that as we go forward. But secondly from this psalm, verses 2 to 7, it's important that we have some confidence. Not overconfidence. Overconfidence is good, isn't it? Overconfidence gets you into trouble, doesn't it? My sister got married. She was marrying a Brazilian. And they were getting married in America where they don't really do speeches. So they asked me to do one speech to sort of entertain everyone was the thing. So I thought, what present can I give them? If a Brazilian and an English person marry, what do you get? Well, you get the best footballer ever. Because you get English desire with Brazilian ability. Happy days. So I went and got an England shirt and a Brazil football shirt, and I was going to get them cut in half, sewn together, Mr. and Mrs. on the back and all of that. Right? So I went to a sewing machine shop, and I took these shirts in. I said, would you just sew them together and do it, and that would be great. And the woman looked at me and said, yeah, we'll just cut them down the middle. We'll sew them together. That'll be fine. I said, no. I said, if you just cut those down the middle and sew them together, the different fabrics used for the collars won't hold together in the wash. What you really need to do is you need to go diagonally so the stitching is strong enough to hold the shirts together. And you need to use this stitch in this way on the sewing machine in order that the fabric can be maintained and it will work okay. She looked at me like, where did you learn to sew? Prison? <laughs> what she didn't realize was, at school, I only got an A in one thing. Sewing. <laughs> At my school, you had to do sewing, cooking, or woodwork for GCSE. And I wasn't allowed to do woodwork because of previous inappropriate use of tools. So, <laughs> so I got an A in sewing. And she didn't realize. You see, when you act with overconfidence, assuming that you know better than other people, that's a problem. This is not overconfidence. It's confidence in the unchanging one. You see, we find in verse 2, the psalmist's declaration to the Lord. In verse 3, his delight in the Lord's people. And in verse 4, his dedication to the Lord's service. David's experience as a fugitive means he has lost his safety and security. Yet in his loss, he's able to declare that the Lord himself is his portion, verse 5. It is a fact in which he can delight, verse 6. And this is a God to whose obedience he will all more gladly dedicate himself. Verse 7. We too have something to declare with confidence, don't we? I saw a friend recently, I haven't told this story for years actually, but I saw a friend recently reminded me because this friend came as a missionary to the UK. And when he came as a missionary to the UK, he'd never been on an aeroplane before. And when he came to the UK, he got to Heathrow Airport and he had a decision to make, something to declare or nothing to declare. So he went through something to declare. And he said to the guy at customs, I declare that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing you'll have life. 
The guy at customs looks at him like, what's wrong with you? So here's another go. I declare that Jesus died for you. And they let him in. But here's the thing, friends. Have we forgotten? We've got something to declare. We've got something to declare with confidence. We've got God as our refuge, but he's also our confidence. And perhaps some of us have forgotten. We've actually got something to declare. And we've got something to declare with our lives as well, with how we live. It's like, um, I won't go into great detail, but you would probably be able to guess that I get asked a lot of questions about the nature of biblical marriage in my job. And you know what? I'm very clear on the theology on it, but I think as a church, we've got to do better. We've got to do better at showing the world that, that, that godly marriage looks amazing and therefore this is a way that can, can form so much of what our culture needs. We've got something to declare in confidence with how we live, but also with our mouths. You see, God is our refuge. God is our confidence. And verses 8 to 11, here's our hope. Here's our hope. I went on a secular radio uh, discussion with two secular humanist academics. One of the problems in my job, I'll be honest, friends, right? I'm not stupid, but I'm not an intellectual. And I get into some rooms with some people, and you're like, how did I get here? And what have I really got to offer here? And I'm on this discussion, and it's just after all the lockdowns have finished, and we're sort of trying to get back to normal. But the nation is at a deficit of hope in that moment, like I've not known in my lifetime. And these two secular academics with brains the size of planets do nothing to add to the hopelessness of the moment. In fact, they make it greater. I am feeling worse and worse with everything they're sharing about the state of the nation. You see, here's the thing, friends. When we're the nation's in pain, the secular narrative offers nothing. If the best is us, there's nothing. There's, there is no hope in that moment. And these two guys are just contributing no hope. Then the uh, host says, Reverend Calver, what do you think? In those moments, I have to remind myself, that's me. Okay, that's me, that's me. I said, I think it's really sad that these two gentlemen who could offer in this moment something for the nation to cling to are offering nothing but hopelessness. They're offering nothing to people that are desperate, to people that are struggling, to people that feel on the floor. And let me just say, my experience has been very different to that. You see, I stand on the unchanging one. You see, for me, hope is not a concept. Hope is a name. His name is Jesus. And while I've known Jesus so profoundly in these last few years, it's been hard, but I've been able to keep going, keep moving forward, clinging on to hope. Then I pushed into a gospel appeal, right, which you're not allowed to do on the BBC. So they cut me off, but it was live, so I thought it was worth a go. <laughs> Friends, we are the custodians of hope. Sometimes it doesn't always feel like that, but we, we have so much hope. Our story, our song is so different to that of the nation. And we need to share it. You know, in the passage, it's because of his intimate relationship with the Lord in verse 8 that David has been sure there would be life after exile, even more so life after death. We have to remember, this is pre the incarnation, and yet the hope he has in eschatological ending is profound. In the final verse of Psalm 16, we celebrate our faith that heaven is real and fully satisfying for, for eternity. And there's an even more explicit link between the promise of resurrection in verses 9 to 11 and Matthew 28. Peter quoted these verses in Acts 2, 25 to 32, on the day of Pentecost, applied them to Jesus, 
as did Paul in Acts 13. Here he proves Jesus' death and resurrection had always been at the heart of God's plan for salvation. Friends, don't get bored of the gospel. It's amazing. It's life-changing. It's world-shattering. I sometimes, I sometimes meet some Christians, obviously none in this room, and I, they do this amazing thing of making the good news not feel like it's good or not feel like it's attractive. I'm an evangelical. I'm a good news person in a bad news world. We're the custodians and carriers of hope. Don't get bored of the resurrection. You know, the gospel message of Jesus is amazing, isn't it? He died that we might live. What a cost. I remember going to the garden tomb. I don't know if you've been to the garden tomb in Jerusalem. And there's a sign on the door. It says, he is not here for he has risen. The tomb is empty. Jesus defeated death. We might know life. Wow. And in the garden tomb, there's a bit by the feet where it was made for Joseph of Arimathea, who was little. Jesus was taller. So they dug out a bit by the feet to fit his dead body in for three days. Why did they do that? Now that I'm middle-aged, I know any home improvements is a sensible fiscal decision for the long term. Not for three nights with a dead body. He didn't need it. But that grave is empty because Jesus is alive. Don't get bored of the message we have. The message we have is so profound against the hopelessness of the culture, especially in this moment. There has not been a better moment to share your faith in living memory than right now. I felt this for a while, but at EA, we also deal with stats. So in 2015, we did something called Talking Jesus. This was about how people view faith and view the church and stuff. We got really excited because this research found that one in five non-Christians want a conversation with a Christian about their faith. Isn't that exciting? You only have to know five non-Christians and one of them is ready to talk to you about their faith. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. Lots of people got overexcited. They got a shoelace with five knots, pray for the five, all of that. If you've got a shoelace like that, throw it in a bin. It's not, it's not relevant anymore. We've recently redone the research. It's now one in three. Not one who comes to church or want to become a Christian, but one in three non-Christians want a conversation with a friend about Jesus. Isn't that amazing? That means the low-level seeker temperature of the UK has nearly doubled in seven years. We're living in a profound moment where we mustn't just look in on ourselves, we need to look out to the lost. I was asked to write the foreword to a book on evangelical church history, 1900 to 1950. Another example of something I was asked to do, because people assume I'm academic. The book was hard work, right? I had Google thesaurus to explain some of the words. But anyway, um, I kept going through this book. The thing that stuck out to me after the Second World War, which was the greatest national tremor till now, actually, at the end of the Second World War, church attendance in the UK was massively up for 18 months. After 18 months, it went back down below pre-Second World War levels. Diagnosis in the book, the lost spent 18 months looking for the hope the Christians had. The Christians spent 18 months getting themselves okay, comfortable, and happy again. By the time the church had sorted itself out, the lost had gone somewhere else. Friends, let's limp towards those who don't have Jesus. Because he remains our refuge. He's our refuge, but he's also our confidence and he's our hope. Now is the moment to share our message. You know, I'm the kind of person, I'll talk to a lamppost about Jesus. That's fine. I, I love the tube. I love talking on the tube to people about Jesus. It's brilliant. Getting a bit where it's really packed with a Christian friend and we'll stand in people's armpits and talk loudly about Jesus. And if anyone's interested, boom, let's divide and conquer. Right? That's, I'm that guy. So I can be a bit much for some people. That's why we need you too. But here's the thing. Any Christian who has a pulse is a witness. And I think it's time we found our witnessing muscles again. Because we've got our refuge with us. We've got our confidence. We've also got our hope. 
And right now, it's easier to share your faith than normal. I've experienced this most profoundly, it's been over a few years now, with my barber. See, I live in northwest London. That means I pay too much for everything. It doesn't mean it's done well, it's just expensive. And that includes my barber, and I've gone to the same barber for seven years. For the first five years, I got absolutely nowhere. You see, I'd go in, I'd think, you're charging me that, I'm going to have a right go in that chair at telling you about Jesus. Got nowhere, zero interest. Then I went in, and he says this to me. I'm so pleased to see you. I've never wanted to talk about God so much. You know, every time I've been in over the last year or so, we've talked so much about Jesus. Because he doesn't know what to do or where to turn. I was in there, as you can see, about a week ago. I was in there getting my hair cut. And he says to me, I don't know why everyone doesn't just give their life to God. I said, too right, mate. Do you want to do that? He said, I'm nowhere near ready. But, you know, we keep trying. But this guy had absolutely decided he had no interest in faith. He's back. While I was preaching at a funeral, this guy comes up to me. I don't often notice the physical sort of shape of another man, but this guy had muscles coming out of everywhere. He was properly in shape. He was about 25, muscles popping out of muscles. As he walked towards me, it was like looking in a mirror. And, um, <laughs> and he starts having a go at me. He says, my mum loves the program you and your wife used to do on TBN. You've stopped it. You must do some more. She's not happy. I said, I'm really sorry, mate. We can't do everything. He says, no, my mum's not pleased with you. You've got to do some more. I said, I'm really sorry, mate, we can't do everything. He said, well, let me tell you a story. He says, I got so bored that I watched four episodes of your program. Gave my life to Jesus. Friends, I don't know how he did. Because actually all the program was was me and Anne on a sofa talking about deep Bible passages. There's no gospel ask because of Ofcom. There's lots of things you can't do. But you happen to do less at this moment for people to want to know the hope you have. Because we are living in a hopeless narrative. And yet in the midst of it, hope is a name. His name is Jesus. And we're called to share him, called to live for him, and called to be him amongst the people we find ourselves. Friends, we've prayed for revival for years. We've believed for a major move of God. I'm not saying it's happening, but the circumstances are there where there's an openness in the culture. There's a desperation for something greater. And in the midst of that, we as the people of God, just as David did, know the Lord is our refuge. My job can be really hard, but sometimes I just come home and I just need to know the Lord is my refuge. It's okay. For all of us, life can be difficult, but we have a refuge. But we need to rediscover some of our confidence, our confidence to declare our hope, because hope is the name, his name is Jesus. And those around you are desperate to meet him. They just don't realize it yet. We need to not be on mute, open our mouths, and pray that the Lord would lead us to the one in three so we don't have to find too many of the two in three that don't want to hear. (laughs) We find those ones, and we share our hope, and we do it together because God is not done with this nation yet. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, I thank you so much for the many people we all know that signposted us towards you. Lord, we long to be that for others. I pray you would lead us, you would guide us, you would help us. Lord, I pray that each one of us would have an opportunity to share something of our hope in you this week. I pray, Lord, you would lead us and guide us to to people where we could speak of the hope we have in you. But Lord, I pray for those of us that need to know you close today. Would you be our refuge? Would you draw alongside us? Would you overshadow us, we pray? Lord, when we need to rediscover our confidence, might we find that in you? And Lord, in a hopeless narrative around us, would we be distinct? Because hope truly has a name. His name is Jesus. And we want to carry you 
into the places around us. Lead us and guide us, we pray. Amen.